And I also felt like I was playing with house money because when you're 18 or 20 and you're in college and you're following this typical path, you have all this pressure and you have like, oh, I, I'm worried about what my parents think or whatever. When you're 30, you're like, I don't care. I'm doing this. And if it doesn't work out, it doesn't work out. And I'm just following what I want to do. And I was like, if I need to get a PhD to get to this point and do this job, that's what I want to do. You're listening to That Worked, a show that breaks down the careers of top founders and executives and pulls out those key items that led to their success. I'm your host, Cowan Harrington, founder of Flash Growth, and I couldn't be more excited that you're here. Welcome back, everyone, to another episode of That Work. This week, I'm joined by Dr. Luis Estevez, and I'm excited for this episode. Luis is the founder and CEO of AIM. AIM enables porous materials to be scientifically tailored to target big problems. More specifically, AIM is focused on a water filter that can target and treat hard-to-remove forever chemicals from water. Prior to founding AIM, Luis completed his material science PhD at Cornell University, obtained a three-year $1 million fellowship from the DOE to work at a national lab, and worked at the University of Dayton Research Institute as a staff scientist. And it is hard to not be inspired when hearing Luis's story. He went through multiple career changes, and each one was very different from the one previous. And it all started when he went back to school in his 30s. And when he talked about these things, it just makes so much sense. The points he makes, the advantages of doing this later in life, a lot of things start to click. And it really made me think, because this is definitely a path that I followed, but he even took this to another level, and I learned a ton from that. The biggest theme throughout his entire career was listening to that inner voice and following what really interests you. And he had such great insight into all of this and such great points and advice for anybody that's looking to make either a career change, a pivot, whatever that might be. And it ultimately led to him founding his own company. And it was so much fun to listen to and hear. So with that, let's jump right into the show. Luis, welcome to the show. Hey, thank you. Thank you so much, Callum. And, and hello, everyone out there. So tell us a little bit about AIM. What is AIM and where did the name come from? Yeah. So AIM is a company I founded in 2019, but the name came from, it's a long version of it, which is Advanced and Innovative Multifunctional Materials. But of course, AIM just sounds a lot easier. But basically, when I started my company, I, you know, like the first thing you have to do is like, okay, I, I got to come up with a name. And then being a comic book nerd growing up, I was like big into the Marvel Universe. And there's this bunch of scientists and engineers that are trying to take over the world. And it's an evil group, but you know, I was like, all right, those guys are trying to change the world. I'm trying to do that for good. But I was like, I'm going to take AIM. And they were advanced idea mechanics is what it stands for. And I was going to say advanced idea materials. And I'm like, it's a little too on the nose. And then I went for advanced and innovative materials and somebody else had that name. So I just threw in a multifunctional in there and, and put a double M at the end. But we've got supervillain origins throughout the entire thing. Yes, yes, of course. Uh, yeah, that holds true for sure. Perfect. Perfect. So what led you to founding AIM just in general? I, and I say this all the time. I'm pretty much an unorthodox founder in just about every way. And I guess a lot of people come with unique 
path to entrepreneurship, but even my path to the path to entrepreneurship was pretty unorthodox and unique. I tried college uh, when I was 18, like most people, and I basically didn't find my way. I'm, I'm a first-generation American. My parents both immigrated to this country from Chile and Spain, and they met here in the States. And so I was born speaking Spanish, not even speaking English till I hit the school system. Then, you know, obviously picked up English, but went through schooling, went into college because that was what you're supposed to do. Had no idea what I was doing. And I basically played rugby, drank a lot of beer, had a lot of fun <laughs> yeah, for like a, a few years. And then at some point I realized this is going nowhere fast. Like I'm getting straight A's and F's everywhere. My GPA, I think, was 2.0 because it was, depends on like how committed I was to the class. Well, so what was it? It was either you liked it. And then you got an A. Pretty much. If you did, and it was like, ah, it's just, I don't even care. Yeah, to do this. yeah. And I just, I wouldn't even drop it. Like, I didn't even know you could drop glasses. Everyone seemed to know how college worked. I had no idea how it worked. Other than I knew how to run around and crash into people. And I was like, all right, that's great. I like rugby. I, I loved a lot. And then basically, I don't know, in my 20s, I left college and I was like, my parents had a restaurant and they're entrepreneurs as well. They started their own restaurant. Like a lot of immigrants uh, have an entrepreneurship in their bones. So I went to work in the restaurant. And so I did that in my 20s, and that seemed to be what I was going to do, which was fine. I liked working in the restaurant, I liked running the restaurant, working on the outside while my dad worked inside in the kitchen. And then um, my girlfriend at the time, who eventually became my wife, I talked to her as I started interacting with customers, I was like, you know what? I talk with these engineers and scientists that come into the restaurant. I like math and science in high school. I should have gone that route in college. I don't know why I didn't. And uh, she's like, well, it's not too late. At this point, I was 30. And I was like, I'm 30. My time is gone. She's like, no, it's not too late. So I'm like, you know what? You're right. I'm going to give it a shot. So I just left the restaurant business, told my parents, you know what? I'm going to give this thing a shot. I'm going to become a, a mechanical engineer. And because I, I was into turbines and cars and and how they worked. And I wanted to work with energy systems like that. And then I was like, I need to find a place far away from New York where I was Too living. much fun. I get that. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. And also like, the restaurant sucks you in. It's just a, a nice way to make money. And if my family needs me, I've got to be there. So I'm like, you know, the only way to do this properly is just just to cut the cord completely and just go some to another state. And uh, my wife said, oh, well, I've always liked Maine. So I'm like, all right, they have a good school there with a good engineering program. That's where we're going. So I just moved to Maine from New York City, which was a total culture shock. What was that like? What was that transition like for you? Uh, it was wild. To me, and this is me talking now, realizing I was just like a total New York City person. Wandering in there, I'm like, this place is so inefficient. Everyone talks too much. Like you go to grocery store lines and everyone's like talking to each other and it's incredibly inefficient. You get to the, the counter, you just want to pay and go on. And they're like telling you, oh, how, how are you liking me? This transaction's over. I, I paid you money. You've given me the receipt. <laughs> like I'm, I'm, my wife was like, you got to like calm down. I love what you found as inefficient wasn't it wasn't like, oh, they've got poor public transit. It was, no. <laughs> they're talking too much at the checkout yeah, line. Yes. In New York City, it's very, you know, you just go about your business because there's millions of people. You can't do that there. But eventually, you know, after getting a lot of, slow down, young fella, you know, and I was like, oh, okay, this is this is a different way of doing things. And I kind of, it took maybe about a month, but then I was like, okay, this is a cool, different way of doing things. And I'm, I learned to embrace and like it. But I mean, it, it was, yeah, it was really wild in the beginning trying to, acclimate to this completely different place that was so different in so many ways. Mainers are rugged individualists. And you were 30 at this time, I was 30, correct? Yeah, that's correct. So this was like, you had already done a career, you had yeah, paused. Yeah, I guess kind of, yeah. And you changed, and this was your first time out of New York City too, like as far as like, or did you, did you spend any time out? I mean, of course, traveling. Actually, no, but. yeah, it was. Yeah, I've traveled, but first time living outside of New York City. Yeah, the, well, when I went to college at first, it was in upstate New York, which okay. is like 
if you're from New York City, you're like, oh my God. They're two different worlds. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. But it was it's still New York. And then when I went to Maine, that was a completely different place. And it was one of the coldest winters on record. It was just, it was like a very abrupt change of, of scenery, of weather, of how to handle interactions, everything. Oh, you sure you want to do this change? Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah, yeah, exactly, exactly. <laughs> but I went there to jump into a mechanical engineering program, and I hadn't done math in 13 years or so. So I took some courses in community college first. I took pre-calc, and I took a bunch of physics courses just to kind of bone up on all the things I had forgotten from high school. And then I just went headlong into it, terrified at first, because I haven't done this in a long time. But that fear was like very motivating, because then I kind of over-prepared. And then after you've worked in the real world, for especially the restaurant business, 60 hours a week or whatever, you jumping into university is not that bad. You're like, oh, this is, I don't beat up my body as much. I spend 40 hours a week doing my studies and I'm acing everything. This is great. And I, you know, I got all the partying out of me from my earlier foray into college. So I was just strict going to school, just cranking out work and just really enjoying it. I was like, oh, I, it was scary the first year, I would say. And then after that, I just really took to it. So once you kind of took to it, and here's what I find super interesting is, correct me if I'm wrong, right after University of Maine, you went to Cornell, is that right? That's right, yeah. So there was a pivotal point when I was um, pursuing my mechanical engineering degree, and I, I liked it. It was great. I was really excelling in it. And I got an internship opportunity to go to Los Alamos National Laboratories to do a summer internship, right? I think it was like during my junior year, and they pay really well, so I'm going to take it. This is great. And so I went there. And I got introduced to research, which I had no idea how that worked. And they were like, oh, yeah, you have this project to do. And they gave me a project to do. And I basically had to try to detect these little cracks in um, aluminum that can be applied to airplanes. The idea was you could, like, have these sensors on planes and detect when these cracks happen. And then you would lessen maintenance and stuff like that. And it was this open-ended project where they were just figure it out. And I was like, I can't believe people get paid to do this. This is so much fun you have this completely open-ended thing that you don't know if it's going to work or not. And you're just throwing all this effort into it. But And our project actually didn't work. And actually, what we tried to make it happen, and I had a team, and that, I love that too. I was like, ah, oh, other smart people around me, this is great. And it didn't work, but I had a blast all summer, like trying to make this work and, try, and pouring over data and coming up with solutions to problems as they came up. And then eventually, I, I was like, how do you get a gig like this? This is great. Well, you need to get a PhD. Because, you know, this is like a scientific job. And I was like, okay. <laughs> I guess we I wouldn't even care, right? Because like, it was like, this was a game to you. It was fun. The PhD was going to be, no matter how hard people probably told you it was, it's probably like, I don't care. Like I'm doing stuff I'm, I'm loving to do. Is that fair? It, that's completely fair. That's exactly how I felt. And I also felt like I was playing with house money because, you know, it's like when you're 18 or 20 and you're in college and you're following this typical path. I mean, it's helpful in lots of ways, but in one way you have all this pressure and you have like, oh, I, I'm worried about what my parents think or whatever, because you still are on the young side. When you're 30, you're like, I don't care. I'm doing this. And if it, you know, it doesn't work out, it doesn't work out. And I'm just following what I want to do. And I was like, if I need to get a PhD to get to this point and do this job, that's what I want to do. So I went back home and I told, still my girlfriend at the time, and I was like, hey, guess what? <laughs> I figured it out. I'm getting a PhD. And much to her credit, she was like, all right, well, recalibrate and figure out. Because, you know, like what I told her was like, yeah, I'll get my mechanical engineering degree. I'll get like a nice job and then we'll have this nice life. And I was like, okay, never mind. Put that on pause for another like five or six years. I need to get a PhD. I need to start applying to PhD programs. So I started doing that, got into Cornell and they were working on nanomaterials that I really liked. I was like, this is 
I even changed majors. I went from mechanical engineering to material science because I was like, I realized that if you can modify these materials on this smaller atomic scale, you can get outstanding properties on like our scale. So I'm like, oh, this is cool. You get to change things and make things better. And that's what I wanted to do. Okay. So you went from A's and F's. Yeah, 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 right. To a PhD from Cornell. Yeah, I went from my old rugby buddies. They can't believe it because they know me from the guy who did keg stands and, and treated his body like a battery ram every Saturday to this career in science. Where I, but I, I took to it. I loved it. I was Once you work in the real world for a while, going back to school was a lot easier. The PhD program is, is a bit of a meat grinder, but even that was like not so bad because if you have bad or annoying professors you have to deal with sometimes, your life prepares you for that. You're like, yeah, I've dealt with jerks before. It's like, not, not a big deal. One of, the, it's one of the things that I'm curious about, did something have to break, right? Did you have to get to a point where it was like, I just can't do this anymore. I'm unhappy doing this. Something's got to change. Oh, you mean uh, back when I was working well, at the restaurant? Yeah, before you made this change, was there some moment that happened that was like, I can't do this anymore. I got to go to Maine and get a degree and then get my PhD. That's a really good question, but it, it wasn't like that. It was more like, I feel like I missed out. On, I liked what I was doing. I liked being in the restaurant business. I loved interacting with people. I loved our customers. I loved working. Again, it's kind of the same job I do now. Uh, you work in small teams, you solve problems that seem unsolvable, but you just do it to get food to people and, and give them a good experience. Like I liked it. I dug it. But I felt like, I was like, you know what? I was really good at this other thing. And I, I wish I kind of went that path because I think I would have been pretty good at it. And I would be able to make, and this is going to sound a little too grandiose, but I was like, I want to make a big impact in the world. And this is how I see I can do it. At some point, I don't know if it's some midlife crisis ahead, or like early midlife crisis ahead of 30, but I was like, I want to make an impact on this world. I'm going to be on this rock for another 70 years-ish. And then I'm gone. Before I'm gone, I want to do something that stays behind. And so I was like, this is a way I can do it. I can actually do something with, with engineering and science and push something along that's going to stay after me. And then with science, it became even more of an opportunity to do that. So it's more like a yearning to do something rather than being, oh, I don't feel like I like my position right now. It was like, oh, this I wish I did this. And then my wife, her name is Erin, Erin was like, you should do it. And I'm like, you know what? I'm going to do it. Let's see where this ride takes us. And one of the things that I'm, I'm curious about is, was it driven from a fear of regret or a, this looks exciting, meaning to break that down a little bit further, like regret, like I like doing this. I'm not doing this. I like what I'm doing now, but I feel like if I don't open this door, I'm going to regret this down the line. A little bit of that. Yeah. There's a little fear of missing a window for sure. Because at 30, it seemed like my time had gone. And, but then I'm like, you know what, if I don't do it now, you know, if I get to 50 at that point, it's it's like, well, now you're heading more in a different path and arc in life, right? So I realized I was like at the end of a window and something that I realized later in life, this is what I wanted to do. So I was like, you know what? Let's do this. So th there was a little bit of that. And people thought it was crazy because we were working in this restaurant and it was a very successful, it's still going strong, uh, my family's restaurant. And it's been going strong for 30 plus years now. So it's, which is like a lifetime. And a restaurant is, they fail after a year or two. Usually the average lifespan is like five years or something. So we had brought this restaurant from nothing really, because I started at age 18, we started that restaurant and then built it up in my 20s to, with my family, of course, so to something that was, but that's now like an institution in the area it's in. But it was really cool to do that. So people are like, why are you leaving now? Like it's, now you have this gold mine and you're making money and you're doing, you're, you're living 
a pretty good lifestyle. And I'm like, yeah, I like all that. And I like the work. It's really just a, I just had this opportunity and I was like, you know what? I'm going to take a ch shot and do this. It's, and there's no doubt in my mind that I have like a privileged life. I, I happen to hit the genetic lottery and grow up in a place that has a lot more opportunities than lots of other places. And, and I have supportive parents and, and I have a supportive wife or a girlfriend at the time. And, and I have this ability to do that. So I was like, I'm going to do it. Like, I'm just going to jump right in. I love it. I love it. Oh, cool. So you got your PhD. Yeah, yeah. Then what? Well, I was doing my PhD, you know, and I applied to a few jobs and I managed to get an interview and a job offer from Intel. And I was like, oh, that's a really good, it's a really good job. And it was a very good offer. And it's a really nice company to work for. And I started, I wasn't getting these fellowships that I applied for. And I had this one last one. And I'm like, I'm holding off for this last fellowship. And then my PI was like, you need to take the Intel job. Those things are really hard to get. I'm like, no, I'm just going to hold off. I'm going to tell Intel, no thanks. It was a nice offer, but this is a job I want. I'm just going to keep doing, I'm going to keep plugging away until I get the job I want. He's like, you're crazy. I feel like I'm talking to my kids. You need to do this and secure your future. I'm like, I'm secure now. It's fine. It's And it just paid off. It worked out really well. I got this uh, postdoctoral fellowship at Pacific Northwest National Labs. And it was exactly what I wanted. Like, I was like, here's what I wanted to work on. They were like, great, that's what we want. We want that capability here at the lab. So here's like a three-year deal to come here and do that work. So that took me to PNNL and back to the National Lab System, which, which is like what I wanted to do. I think one of the things that you said there that's super, I personally think it's super important is that everyone's going to have an opinion. Yeah. And I think one of the things that I did wrong is that I put more weight into, I didn't use other people's advice as a way to kind of broaden my point of view. I used it as that's what you need to do. And sounds like you went the opposite. And I do that now. And I love that. But I didn't for a long time. It sounds like you did the opposite and it worked out in your favor. Yeah. I, but, you know, I kind of did what was expected of me too early on. I think we all kind of do that. And I think it's just a question of, Everybody at some point, hopefully, uh, realizes, you know what, I need to live my life for me. I can't live my life for other people. And I like other people and I like their input and I'll take that into consideration. But it happens, it clicks for people at different points in their lives. And for me, it clicked later on in life, like when I decided to pursue first an engineering degree and then the PhD. And it's just been like that ever since. I'm like, this is what I'm going to do. And I feel like if you go that route, you it almost always leads to success because you're doing what you want to do and it leads to like a more fulfilling life. So, but it's hard to figure that out. Like, and, and I think that's what starting late on my path to academia had some definite disadvantages, but the advantage is you kind of have your, your shit figured out at that point. You're like, I know what I like. I know, I know what I need to do to make me happy and I'm going to just do that. And so it gives you like an advantage over I mean, you think about grad school, these kids are all 22 years old, and I was like 35 at the time. I mean, at 22, I don't know if I'd be able to handle the stress and the meat grinder that is a PhD program. But at 35, I was like, yeah, whatever. Like, this is just a hard day at work, you know? <laughs> <laughs> you know especially in the restaurant industry. Yeah, I yeah. spent some time there, and it is, it's a grind. Okay, so tell me a little bit, did you know that you wanted to found a company from the research that you were doing? Not then. So that really happened when I came here to the Dayton area. So when I, when I was doing my fellowship, I was finishing up my fellowship and I'm like, oh, I got to do the next thing, right? So this is nomadic lifestyle. My fellowship was at at State of Washington. And then one of my colleagues from PNNL, she had worked at UDRI as a battery scientist because I, I came from the working with batteries and, and power sources and that kind of thing. That was most of my research was uh, involved there. 
And she's like, there's this place, UDRI, which they don't care what you want to work on. If you can get it funded, they'll let you work on it. I'm like, that's perfect. That's what I want. So since she worked there and she like, all right, let me get a job there. And so when I finished my fellowship, I got in contact with her and, and her boss. And then they brought me in as a new hire and I got to work on the stuff I wanted to work on. And at that point, I was moving away from energy storage and wanting to work on water purification because I, I started realizing the materials I was working with, though they're good for battery electrodes and lots of other things that I had been working on, they're really ideally suited for water purification if I could just tweak the chemistry a little bit. I was like, instead of aiming them for, no pun intended, <laughs> aiming them for energy sources, I can aim them towards water purification and really make an impact there. And that stemmed from working at PNL and having my own research and being able to collaborate with other people and, and learning from them that, oh, these materials that I work on and that I've developed actually have legs for other types of applications. And so that I came into UDRI all fully ready to like work on this new type of research. And then in Dayton, which has this, I don't know, it sounds cliched, but this entrepreneurial lifeblood running through the city. And I started working at UDRI with small businesses and small companies as the institutional support for them, as they would try to take their technologies and take them to start tech startups based off of them. And so we would be the bigger institution giving them help. And then I started learning how that process worked because you start talking to those founders. And then I started realizing the stuff I'm doing can easily be transitioned. Well, not easily. <laughs> it's, it's, it was, it was all very difficult. But I'm like, this is not just something that I can do and write scientific papers on and add to the scientific literature on. Like, this is something that can turn into a product and actually help a lot of people. And the more I dug into water and its issues, the more I started realizing there's like 2 billion people on the planet that don't have access to local water that isn't contaminated, like with, usually typically with feces. And I was like, that's ridiculous because I walk through UDRI pulling cold water out of the walls whenever I want. And there's people like a third of the planet that can't do this. And I was like, that's absurd. And so, you know, I was really motivated. I was like, this is how I can make an impact. I can take the work that I've been working on both myself and with the work I had done at UD or UDRI and transitioned that into a startup. And that became the impetus for starting Name, basically. So how did you do that? That started uh, with, basically, I was, I was proposing, I found that the NASA was looking for water treatment devices on their International Space Station. So I wanted to partner with a company to do that and eventually transition that research into that company and then maybe join their company. So I found somebody who had founded a company and she was a good partner, but somewhere in the midst of writing this proposal, she got a job offer from the Air Force, the Air Force Research Lab local here. And she's like, it's too good of a job offer. I'm just going to dissolve the company. And I was like, oh my God. And I had been writing this whole thing myself, like with the thought that I would transition this technology into a company and then join her. And I'm like, what am I going to do? I don't know really what and then I was like, you know what? I can start my own company. Why can't I start my own? And I was like- So you weren't even thinking about that at that point. At that point, I, I knew I I wanted to eventually start a company maybe and and kind of, you know, I was like, this technology is going to be transitioned out. I just don't know how this, I want this out there and I want this in products and I want to eventually work there. But like right now I have this nice job at UDRI and all this other stuff. I knew I wanted to get there and that almost became the catalytic event that like pushed it all forward. I was like, okay. Let's jump in. Since she dissolved the company, I can start my own company and I can 
transition the technology into my own company. Then I'm like, wait, can I do that? <laughs> like I'm working at UDRI. So I check with my boss and he's like, I think that should be okay. Let's talk, check with my boss's bosses and everything. And so you you go through the whole chain of command, but everybody was like, yeah, that's this is fine. I'm like, okay, I can start my company. This is great. I can transition it, it out. And then I started talking to the the legal representative or the attorney over at UD further about it. Cause she's like, well, what's your company do? And I told her what I was doing. She goes, oh, that sounds really cool. Have you talked to the Entrepreneur Center? I'm like, what's the Entrepreneur Center? She's like, oh, Dayton has an Entrepreneur Center. You should really talk to Jordan Rowe. He's like one of the main people there. And she's like, oh, are you gonna be, so you're, you're doing this to time it with the University of Dayton's push to their new tech transfer program. And I'm like, no, what are you talking about? And she's like, oh my God, like a new tech transfer program is starting here at UD. You should talk to uh, Matt Willenberg about that. He's he's the head of tech transfer. He's an attorney at UD. So I talked to him and I was like, again, it was like this serendipitous, really lucky thing where as I wanted to form my company and transition this technology out, UD had been pushing for this kind of thing. And it was great. I still have a strong relationship with UD and UDRI. And I, I founded my company in 2019, but really it was 2021 when I went full-time into it. And I was like, and I've just been going strong ever since. Did you feel that if you didn't bring this technology, you went so you went down this path, this woman took the a, a really good position at Air Force. Did you feel that if you didn't do it, another window was going to close? Yeah, again, it was less a, a fear of some window closing and more like, I need to do this. Like, it's almost like uh, it's an opportunity. I was like, this is perfect. I felt like I was kind of working in this kind of half in, half out way to trying to transition this technology out. And then when this happened, I'm like, perfect. I'm just going to go jump right into it. I'm going to form my own company. This is the way to do it. And it just kind of, it just made sense. I had really good people above me who are like, hey, you got you to gotta do what you, what's best for you and your dreams. It turned out to be something that, that worked really well. Okay, so you got into the business and you're in it full time now. What were some of those things that you're like, ooh, I wish I knew this before getting into this? Oh, man. <laughs> like everything. What's the first punch in the face that you had? The biggest punch in the face and, and the biggest rough acclimation. And, and my career at this point had been, my life has been always acclimating, just starting fresh and starting into a new thing. When I went from restaurant business to, to mechanical engineering, that's like a bit of a a rough transition and then going from New York City to Maine and then and then going from, oh, you know what? I'm going to do a PhD and then doing that and then do my own research, like running my own research at the National Lab. That was a, a giant new thing. Like I wasn't working for anyone. I was working for... So just my whole life had been a series of like these jumps, but the pat, the jump from scientist to entrepreneur is like was like totally different. I, I The first thing I noticed uh, or the first, I guess, punch in the face was when I would pitch or put together my slides for my, for my pitch deck, as a scientist, it's a whole different world. Like as a scientist, you are very, very careful about anything you say and everything has to be backed 100% with lots of data and very well qualified. You know, you're like, you can't say these materials are, are going to do X, Y, and Z. You're like, our hope is that these materials with, if we're able to do this and solve this problem can do this. And you just, because you don't want to be oversell anything. In science, that's considered really terrible. And then you go into entrepreneurship, it's completely opposite. It's like, <laughs> everyone's overselling like crazy. And, I'm, and I felt like I was the only one not doing it. And I, you know, I would give these pitches and, I'm, and I'd be what sounded like a very non-inspiring pitch. Well, if everything goes right, you know, I would constantly qualify. And then I, I was told many times I had great mentors and they were like, and I was like, I don't want to mention I'm from Cornell. Like that sounds too 
pompousy or whatever. And they're like, no, you, they want to hear that. That's important. When you're pitching to people, they want to know you've been there because that means you come with like serious academic credentials. And I'm like, and so I had this, as scientists were taught, be humble, never always qualify things, never oversell anything. And then I went into this entrepreneurial world and it was like, sell the hell out of, and I found out later, like I would have all these backup slides of like why what I'm saying is correct. Like the science behind it and nobody cared. Like I, I would prepare all these slides and I would pitch to like, you know, people and they're like, and I'm like, aren't you going to challenge me on that? And they would challenge me on the business end of stuff. And I'm like, oh, that's, I get So then I started realizing, okay, that's the party to shore up. That's the party. So I guess that was like my punch in the face moment is like being like, okay, you know what? The fact that you have a PhD and that, you know, you have this career as a scientist, that's enough. You don't need to bring in all this truckload of data to kind of support your your claims. They just figure you got that covered. Like they want to know other things. And so I started, my pitch decks went from plot heavy behemoths to like slick, less cluttered and cleaner and just get the message out. This is what we're trying to do. We're trying to bring clean water to people, give the problem statement, give the path to market, give the, you know, these are, these are the things they're going to care about. Like the team. Yeah. You, you're a scientist. You got that, that whatever, like don't go too far. Don't, you don't need to like bring in all the supporting data. They just figure you got it. So that was the roughest transition for me in the beginning, for sure. What did you find to be the most exciting piece that you didn't realize? Ah, that's a really good question. Yeah. I guess I didn't realize this. You get to work with whoever you want to work with. And I knew that there came a certain amount of freedom, of course, with running your own business. I mean, you're, you choose what to do, right? But I'm like, oh, I get to work with whoever I want to work with. Like, I don't have to, I've been in many positions and, and where, you know, your boss goes to you and you're like, all right, we got this new project where, you know, I want you to work with this person. And you're like, ah, oh, that, that guy's kind of annoying or, or, <laughs> or like, <laughs> or like, I don't really trust their work or like, uh, whatever. it's like, well, whatever, just do it. Or I want you to do this area of research. And you're like, I don't know. I want to, I want to do water, let's say. And they're like, no, no, we want you to do this. Like, this is what's paying us money. So do this. And you're like, okay, got it. And you know, there's none of that anymore. Like I don't have to work with people. I don't, I don't like working with. And more importantly, there's not a lot of people like that though. I found like I've been pretty lucky with most of the people around me, but more importantly, I get to work with whoever I want to. So I don't have to make a case for it at my boss. I'm like, you know what? There's this guy who's a researcher over here at this university and I, I really like his work. Or there's this other researcher who who works for the National Lab and she's amazing and I, I want to, and then you have to bring a case like, you know, like, oh, they can bring this capability and I think we can get this kind of funding and you have to justify it now. I just like, no, it's, in my head it's justified. I know this person, I know what they bring to the table. I wanna work with them and I can, it's great. That's my favorite thing about what I do now. For. The brand new founders that are out there, what are some of the uncomfortable truths of being a founder? It takes your whole life. I don't think this is a secret, but just in case it is, you, you should know your life is gone. Like I liken it to having, I don't have any kids. Uh, so I don't know if I'm speaking out of turn to all the parents out there, but to me, it's like basically having a kid. You don't sleep, you work on it constantly. It drags your whole life into it. You have no social life, disappear from other people's lives. They're like, we haven't seen Lou. We haven't seen Luis in forever. Like, what's up? It's like, he's got a startup company. Like, he doesn't talk to anybody anymore. And you just become so focused on this thing that you've created that you're trying to keep alive for like the first year. And you're, it's crying all the time. And you're just like, I don't know what to do. And I, this is the first one I have. Like, I, I don't know if, uh, do you feed it? Do you soothe it? Do you like the same thing with the company? Like, I don't know. Like, does this, how do we handle this problem? Like, do we, and you have, 
people who are in your lives who are mentors and you have people who guide you through it and there's a million books and there's it's very similar like the analogy and i think that's what anybody who wants to be an entrepreneur or a founder should go into it thinking like this is basically at the same level of having a child except that you know if the company dies it's not that big of a deal i guess but like um but it's it's the same kind of commitment it's the same type of Worry is the same type of overwhelming consumption. It becomes your whole focus. And then you hope that in a couple of years, it can start toddling on its own. And then you can start to assimilate back into somewhat of a social life and, and, and reconnect with people that you've ignored for the last two years. Have you been able to do that now? A little bit. It's starting to happen. It still feels never, never ending and overwhelming, but I'm kind of a little bit. I think this year is going to be a big one of growth and a, a big one that we're going to... It's going to be a lot busier, but in a good way. And I think in, I'd say, two-ish years, it's going to get to that point where we'll have like a lot more employees. We'll have like, we'll be able to, I wouldn't say take the foot off the accelerator or like take a break, but every once in a while, enjoy having a social life. That would be nice <laughs> again. Do you feel that that sacrifice is worth it for you? Yeah, yeah, 100%. Yeah, it's been great. I like what we're trying to do. I mean, obviously, I, I wouldn't be doing it if I didn't think it would work. So to me, it's like I keep looking at like what we're going to do and how we're going to leave some kind of impact on this world. And I, I'm kind of really jazzed about it. I really feel like being able to bring clean water is not just it's not just a developing world problem either. Like, you know, obviously, there's the example of Flint, Michigan, but with natural disasters coming from all the climate change, from all the storms and natural disasters that come from climate change that, that have been increasing in frequency and severity, it's just all, like, water is going to be a big problem. Like, there's no way around it. Like, we can't just keep trucking plastic bottles of water to all these sites because that's, I mean, forget about the environmental impact. Like, that's just not fi financially sustainable. Like, it'll bankrupt the country because these storms are going to happen more and more and they're going to be worse and worse and they're going to have to get clean water to people. So we haven't even talked about what Abe does, which is, it's been a fun conversation. Like, I was like, oh yeah, what we do. Like, what we basically do is we have this technology where essentially you can imagine like your typical household pitcher of water that, not to use a trademark name, but like a Brita pitcher, like what everybody knows is in everybody's fridge at home. You pour tap water into it, gravity powered. It cleans the, the taste of the water and makes it taste good. We're doing that, but with antimicrobial like capabilities. So basically you can take duck poop infested pond water, pour it over the top of what would be our pitcher, go through our filter, and then come out as clean, good tasting water without any nasty mic microbial contaminants in there, like bacteria and things of this nature. So what we're trying to do is like be able to give both FEMA, the government, but eventually people the power to, to clean their water in the event of national emergencies, uh, when they're going hiking, when they're going like, these are the markets that we're going to hit into, but eventually get to the problem of the developing world of, of people not having clean water. So that's kind of our path to get there for getting this technology out to as much as many people as possible. But, but that's sort of what we do. And that's, and that's what makes me really excited. Like I think of how we can get there and how our, our tech can get out there. That makes me feel like we've made the right decision. Like we, cause I know it's going to happen and we're going to impact people's lives. So I'm kind of excited about it. I love it. I love it. Last question is, if you could have a conversation with your younger self, age totally up to you, <sighs> what would that conversation be? What advice would you give? I'd love my life the way it went. So like I kind of, even though it's it sounds weird uh, and it sounds totally unorthodox going from 
partying and playing rugby in college to eventually work in the restaurant and then deciding to follow what I was quote unquote made for or whatever. But to me, it's like, that's all part of the process. So I don't think I would give myself any advice as far as to change any of that. But I think what I would say is maybe to get to that point that we discussed earlier, where it's like, hey, do this for you, live your life for you, don't live your life for other people. And I think that's generally a good advice. And and when I figured this out, I found out that I realized that like nobody goes, like when you have people that are that have some terminal disease or whatever, they never say, I wish I would have done more things for other people. Or I wish, everyone says like, I wish I had done what I wanted to do. Like everybody says that. And so it's like, the sooner you figure that out, the better your life is. So I, I would probably impart that bit of knowledge and be like, you don't have to be greedy. <laughs> you don't have to be like, just me first. But you should be living your life for you and enjoying everybody and adding to their lives too, but in a way where you, you're not living for other people. And I think that's, the sooner you figure it out, the better you, you go on this path. Uh, it's excellent. That's excellent. Luis, thanks for coming on today. Thanks for having me. I enjoyed it very much. I appreciate the questions. I appreciate the time for to let me chatter on about my life. I, I love it. Thanks. Absolutely. I hope you enjoyed Luis and I's conversation. I loved hearing Luis's story. I know it's cliche, but it's never too late to make a pivot and follow your dreams. If you want to learn more about Luis, you could find him on LinkedIn in the show notes. Also, if you like this episode, you could find me on LinkedIn to let me know. And if you really want to support the show, a review on Apple Podcasts or Spotify is very much appreciated. Thanks for listening, everybody, and I'll see you next week. Bye.